Hello, denizens of the internet. This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian, and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke. Number 46, Season 2, Episode 13, Boshin War, Part 1, A Question of Layers. In Japan in 1867, a sacred alliance between Satsuma, Choshu, and Tosa domains was hard at work engineering a cause for war against the government of 15th Shogun Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Through a campaign of political maneuvering in Kyoto, arson and armed provocation in the Kanto Plain and elsewhere, secret agreements with allies in different domains, and outright forgery of imperial edicts by sympathetic court nobles, they provoked the shogun into punching first and fabricated imperial sanction to counterattack. This began the Boshin War of 1868-69. The Boshin War remains, as of this writing, one of the points of Japanese history that's received the least comprehensive coverage by English-speaking historians, though in recent years that's begun to change a little bit. In one historian's words, we are in haste to see the shogunate fall. So our purpose here is to fill that gap and get a comprehensive podcast format History of the Boshin War out there into the world in English. Our purpose isn't just to make a podcast and carry Friday Night History forward, it's also to put together a draft for an eventual book. But before we talk about the Boshin War, we need to talk about layers. Fernand Braudel, a preeminent French historian of the Annales School, described something called la longue durée, the long term. Rather than privilege the action of individual humans, it puts them at the bottom of a three-layer continuum. At the top is the role of the environment in shaping history, the things that happen in the very long term. In the middle is the level of what he calls the history of groups, collective destinies, and general trends. Things like the second and third order fallout from a famine, for instance, belong at this level. Finally, at the lowest level is that of events, politics, and people, the history of individuals with which the general public is more familiar. What I think we can take from this is that humans have agency, but in a continuum with bigger, longer-term forces like economics, population, weather, and geology, it only has a certain amount of reach. While different historians have different perspectives and vantage points where they prefer to focus their work, the fact of the matter is, in my opinion, keeping mindful of these layers even a little bit can be helpful. Or to put it another way, even when individual action exercises its greatest reach, humans in the grand scheme of things are small. We can't afford to forget it, especially when thinking about why wars turn out the way they do. Agency exists. What we need is a sense of scale. But that's difficult for us to do with any history, and the Boshin War is no exception. There are many heroes in popular depictions of the Boshin War in accounts that range from realistic to hagiographic. 
But what we really need to understand is that quite a bit of what decided the war's outcome was in motion for decades prior and was beyond the control of any individual human. For instance, while the men of the Shinsengumi get depicted as romantic heroes, the shogunate army more broadly gets depicted as a bunch of sword-slinging romantics, and it seems obvious that people who use swords against guns will lose. But the shogunate army, for quite a few years at that point, was actually equipped with Western-style weapons and equipment, even American Civil War surplus. So why did they lose? Conversely, there's a lot of hay made of the so-called great men of the Restoration, but they benefited from a lot of geographic factors and currents in international developments that only bolstered their efforts, even if they weren't consciously aware of those forces having been at play. That's why we need to take the time to set the stage before talking about the eve of war in 1867, both to get you acquainted with the lay of the land, as well as to talk about some of the more salient developments and forces that shaped the situation going into the war. Let's start with what Japan looked like in terms of political organization and major subdivisions. Japan in the late Edo period, 1600 to 1868, was a collection of 250 or so feudal domains, each ruled by a semi-independent local lord who owed fealty to the Tokugawa shogun whose capital was in Edo, the city we now call Tokyo. The shogun, in turn, drew his claim to legitimacy because he was at least nominally appointed by the emperor, who resided in Kyoto, the ancient imperial capital far to the west. While the shogun answered to the emperor, the shogun had the military power, as had his ancestors since the first shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, in the opening days of the 17th century following the climactic Battle of Sekigahara. Those 250-odd domains were called Han, and their local lords were called Daimyo. So, for example, the territory where I lived and where my research focuses used to be Sendai Han, which in 1853, when Commodore Perry arrived off Uraga, was ruled by a Daimyo named Date Yoshikuni. These Han were broadly divided into three major categories. Shinpan, also called Kamon, were cousins of the shogun, and either had the family name Tokugawa or Matsudaira. Fudai were hereditary vassals of the Tokugawa clan, most of them with traditions of service dating to before the shogunate, when the Tokugawa family was a particularly wealthy daimyo clan itself. Finally, there were the daimyo classed as Tozama, literally outside lords, some of whom had been tenuous allies of the Tokugawa, as had been the date, while others had pledged fealty only when all other alternative was rendered moot. The daimyo performed a rotating schedule of alternate attendance on the shogun in Edo, nominally to serve him, but in fact to keep them spending a good portion of their money on traveling in pomp to and from Edo and maintaining multiple mansions in the appropriate style. Of course, if we mention Edo period Japan... Uh, the first image that will come to a lot of folks' minds is that of warriors, the caste we shorthand as samurai today. But by 1853, war was not their primary profession. While, yes, there were peasant uprisings throughout the Edo period that were violently put down, and the domains maintained various levels of military preparedness, straight-up war requiring large-scale uh, 
mobilization was not something that had happened since the fall of Shimabara in 1638. Shortly after that, the shogunate enacted its policy of national seclusion, sakoku in Japanese, and Japan remained significantly isolated from the rest of the world in contact and in commerce until the U.S. Navy's East India Squadron under Commodore Matthew Calbraith Perry forced it open in 1853 and set in motion the Bakumatsu period. Bakumatsu is Japanese for end of the shogunate. Here's the thing to remember about the shogun. The word shogun was his military title, and it was shorthand for Sei Taishogun, Barbarian Subduing Generalissimo, a title in nominal imperial service that had been in use sporadically since the earliest days of the imperial government, and then regularly as a dynastic title starting in 1185. The Tokugawa family was the third dynasty to hold the title. Commodore Perry's arrival, which was the culmination of a long trend of foreign near-misses and attempts at incursion, cast the reality behind barbarian-quelling Generalissimo into doubt. Because the shogunate was unable to simply make Perry leave like they had everybody who tried to enter Japan other than the Dutch and Chinese merchants, the optics almost immediately began to hurt the entire basis of its legitimacy. It wasn't just that it couldn't make Perry go away, but in fact... After Perry left with the Treaty of Kanagawa in hand, the shogunate actually asked for the domain's advice on how to proceed. If you publicly look weak and then ask an honest opinion from someone who's had to hold their tongue around you because they thought you were stronger than them, that's going to take a lot of effort to recover from. That being said, world history had carried on regardless in those long centuries of isolation, and the shogunate knew it damn well. Japan hadn't been hermetically sealed after all, especially in Nagasaki, where both Dutch and Chinese merchants regularly came to call. Be it world events, medical advances, technological advances, even if the shogunate didn't always act on appropriating those advances, and still assumed it could keep the world at arm's length. This is, for example, how shogunate doctors and their allies in the domains of northern Kyushu, most notably Saga, found out about developments in smallpox inoculation and spearheaded the campaign I wrote about in an article for Unseen Japan. It's also how they found out about Western military advances, in some cases learning from being on their receiving end, as with the 1808 incident where the Royal Navy warship HMS Phaeton entered Nagasaki Harbor unopposed. Was the shogunate just sitting on its hands? Did it not understand the importance of adaptation? And did it not get that particularly with the growth of steam power and the expansion of the international whaling trade that foreign incursions were only going to increase? Was it just a backwards traditionalist order that didn't understand that it needed to be quote-unquote enlightened? No, no, and no. In fact, despite uneven and inconsistent response, the shogunate was paying attention and it was taking action and adapting in the face of internal and external challenges. But in the end, it was not enough sustained and bold action and did not give the shogunate what it needed to stop Commodore Perry's mission, which only became the catalyst for the beginning of the shogunate's crisis of legitimacy and made its eventual collapse that much more likely. We'll pick up with what came next, next time. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, 
questions? Friday Night History is a weekly historical romp with me, your favorite history dyke, Dr. Nairi A. Bakalyan. Our theme is Buga Blue, written by Craig Friedrich and performed by the U.S. Army Blues, available royalty-free at pixabay.com music. This and more is made possible by listeners like you. Support Friday Night History. Sign up at patreon.com slash riversidewings and get access to transcripts and sources as well as bonus episodes. Or subscribe at twitch.tv slash riversidewings. Thank you for being the wind beneath my wings. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next time, Boshin War Part 2, Staggering Through Innovation. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for. I'll see you around. <laughs>